Welcome to the podcast of Christ Church in Town in Jacksonville, Florida. We are seeking the renewal of all things in Jesus Christ. Towards that end, we are committed to cultivating personal transformation in Christ, an uncommon fellowship of racially and economically diverse individuals, and the flourishing of our neighbors. To join our local body in membership or financial support, visit ChristChurchInTown.org. this Advent season, we've been uh, looking in our sermons, uh, we've been preaching a series called God Came Down. And what we've seen is that the story of the Bible, really from uh, the beginning to the end, is one continual story of the downward movement of God to come and to reach His people. We saw uh, in our first sermon that that movement of God towards His people wasn't deterred by human sin. We looked at how he came for Adam and Eve right in the wake of the fall. We saw last week how God's movement towards his people isn't deterred by human questions or doubts as he moved towards Abraham to make his covenant with him in the midst of a time when Abraham was doubting God's plan. And this morning we're going to look in Exodus chapter 33 at another time where God's relationship with his people seemed fragile. A time uh, after the giving of the law, giving of the Ten Commandments, and then the people's worship of the golden calf, when Moses, uh, the leader of the people, goes to God to beg him to stay with his people, to be known by his people, to make himself known to his people. And so we're going to look today uh, at how God comes down to be known. And so if you're willing and able, would you please stand as we read God's word? Our reading today is Exodus 33, verses 12 through 23. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too that this nation is your people. And he said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of earth? And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, And I know you by name. Moses said, Please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and is given to us in love. Thanks. You can be seated. 
These Old Testament stories that we've been looking at uh, are often called uh, theophanies. Uh, Theophany is just a big word that means God's appearance, the invisible God uh, becoming visible. Because the scriptures tell us that God is high and as exalted and as holy as he is, is above and beyond us as he is, wants to be known, that he is a God who wants to be known by men and women and children like you and I. You know, if there's one common religious assumption in Western culture today, it's that none of us can with any certainty claim to know God. Right In a world where there are competing religious ideas, where there's different religions and different philosophies that offer different ideas about God, the one thing that it seems that nearly everyone has agreed on is that no one can claim that they know God in some kind of special way. We assume that maybe uh, everybody knows him a little bit. It's either everybody's a little bit right or everybody's totally wrong. But nobody has the right to claim to know God. Consider uh, the scene from the classic film, Talladega Nights, <laughs> The Ballad of Ricky Bobby. If you haven't seen uh, Talladega Nights, it, uh, it, one of the greatest actors of our generation, Will Ferrell, uh, plays a, a fictionalized NASCAR driver named Ricky Bobby. In one moment uh, in the movie, uh, it's a ridiculous movie, uh, but at one moment, Ricky Bobby believes himself to be on fire after a wreck in a, in, a, uh, in a NASCAR race. And so he jumps out and he begins screaming and he screams a prayer. He says this, help me Jesus, help me Jewish God, help me Allah, help me Tom Cruise, use your witchcraft to get this fire off of me, help me Oprah Winfrey. Um, and so what we see uh, Ricky Bobby doing in a, in a farcical sense is hurling prayers just chunking darts at a dartboard, hoping something sticks, right? Whether it's God, whether it's, uh, whether it's the God of Jesus Christ, whether it's the God of Judaism, the God of Islam, whatever it is that Tom Cruise is on, uh, whatever it is that Oprah's selling, he says, something's got to stick and I need help. So he just hurls these prayers out there. And as funny as that is, it's not that far from how many of us go through our lives, we hope that there's some reality out there. We hope that, there's, that maybe somebody has some bit of the truth. And so we try to cover our bases. We read books on all sorts of different things. We explore different ways. And ultimately, I think we throw our hands up, many of us, and say, who can really uh, claim to know God? Well, uh, in contrast to that, consider a couple of different ways that the Bible speaks about knowing God. Because the Bible does speak with absolute clarity over thousands of years in different authors that not only can we know God, but God longs to be known. Just earlier in this chapter in Exodus 33, we read that God used to speak with Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Intimate, personal knowledge. We'll read later the Apostle Paul as he tells his own life story will say this, he says he counts everything, everything he ever accomplished, he counts as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The Bible tells us that we can know God. The Bible tells us that we're made to know God. 
But there is something arrogant about claiming that we in and of ourselves can know God, that our ideas about him might be right. It is arrogant to claim that my ideas about God are better than somebody else's ideas about God. But the scriptures tell us that it's not your ideas about God that war with other conceptions of God, but that God himself wants to be known. He wants to make himself known so that you can know him, not just know about him, in the abstract ideas about God, but so that you might know him face to face, like Moses knew him. So that you might know him like Paul knows him, where he, you could say, you know what, everything else in my life, my family and my job and my house, none of it matters compared to what I have in knowing God. So how can we know God? You know, there's probably no more important question in a human life uh, that you can ask than how can we know God? Maybe some of you are here and you know that you want to know God better. You know that you don't know him. You know that, there, that maybe you've tasted something of his reality and you want to know more of him. What a good desire. And we'll see in this passage that God is nearer to you uh, than you could ever imagine. That knowing him, as massive and mysterious as it is, is actually also very, very simple. For many of us, you, you do know God. You know him genuinely. You've come to know him by faith at some point in your life. Yet can you say that you know him as a friend, that you know him face to face, that you know him in such a way that knowing him shapes every other part of your life? Brother Lawrence, a Carmelite monk in the 1600s, wrote this in his classic book, The Practice of the Presence of God. Let us give our thoughts completely to knowing God. The more one knows him, the more one wants to know him. And since love is measured commonly by knowledge, then by deeper and more extensive knowledge, so will love be the greater. Brother Lawrence tells us that there's this unity between knowing God and loving God. That as we grow in our knowledge of God, our, our experience of God, we also grow in our love. Our love for God and our love for others. And so how can we know God? Well, in this little uh, section of chapter 33 of Exodus, Moses asks God three questions. Three uh, extremely simple prayers that Moses asks God in order to know God. And so we want to look at three simple prayers for knowing God. The first thing that Moses asks of God is, Show me your ways. Show me your ways. Look at verse 13. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Show me your ways. You know, there's so much uh, about God's ways that are mysterious to us, right? So much about God that seems to elude our understanding. Why God allows the things that he allows in the world, why God does the things that he does, in the world, how his uh, sovereign rule over his world relates to our prayers and our lives. Right? There is a lot about the ways of God in the world that are mysterious to us. There's a great old John Newton hymn that says of the Lord that he moves in a mysterious way in this world. And yet, there is a lot about God's ways that he lets uh, be known to us. Right? Christianity is the belief that God speaks. We believe that God's word is his spoken word through human authors. Right? And so that if we want to know God's ways, 
He has made them clear to us in some ways. He's told us what he wants from us. He told us his character. He's told us who he is. So while there's a lot of stuff that we wish God would tell us that he hasn't told us, there's a whole lot that God has told us about who he is and what he wants for us in a relationship with him. And so what Moses is asking of God here is essentially, God, tell me what you want from me. Tell us what you want from us. Let us know your ways in this world. You've entered into this covenant with Abraham. Now you've entered into this covenant with us. Tell us what life with you is meant to be about so that, as he says, we can find favor in your sight so that we can know that our lives with you are on firm footing. We want to please you. Show me your ways. I think very often uh, it's human nature, it's my nature, that we don't really want to know God's ways. Right? It's not that, it's not that we want to know things about God and we just can't quite figure them out. A lot of times it's that we don't want to know what God's made plain to us. Because we have this sinking suspicion that if we understood God's ways, that they would somehow conflict with our ways. Right? And most of us fundamentally want our ways to be the right ways. We want to make up our own minds about what's good and what's evil. We want to make up our own minds about what matters most in this life. We even want to make up our own minds about what God is like. And so knowing God starts with, this, with, with wanting to know God's ways. It starts with the statement, you know, God, my ways may not be the best ways. I've followed my ways for most of my life, and it's gotten me lost. It's gotten me into trouble. I need wisdom. I need a life and a light from outside myself. I need to know your ways. You know, the sin in the Garden of Eden begins because Adam and Eve decide to follow their ways over God's ways. Right? The serpent's first temptation is less about an apple than it is about doubting the goodness of God. Right? Did God really say, don't eat this fruit? Oh, no, no. God just doesn't want you to know. He wants you to be dependent on him. He doesn't want you to know for yourself good and evil and the way through this world. Because he knows that if you eat it, your eyes will be open and you'll see and you can follow your own way. Sin and foolishness always begins with our commitment to follow our own ways over and against God's ways. You know, the context uh, here in Exodus 33 is important. In Exodus, uh, so far, we've seen God takes Moses up on, onto Mount Sinai, and he spends time with him there, and he reveals his law. He reveals the Ten Commandments to Moses there, and Moses uh, writes them down on stone tablets, and he walks down Mount Sinai, and before he can even get back to his people, he sees them worshiping an idol. He sees them worshiping a golden calf. They took all their jewelry, they melted it down, they made a cow, a calf, and they said, this is our God, this is the God who brought us out of Egypt. And Moses uh, dropped the tablets, they broke just like in the movie, and, uh, and he's sitting there with his people. They've, before they even got the Ten Commandments, they had already broken numbers one and two. Right? They had already shown that at a basic level, they weren't capable of being faithful to the God who had been so incredibly faithful to them, bringing them out of slavery, promising them the promised land. In Exodus 34, 
is he goes to talk with God about these people. Uh, He's going to describe the people of Israel in chapter 34, verse 9. He describes them as a stiff-necked people. This becomes one of Moses' favorite ways to describe his his people. Uh, They are a stiff-necked people. Have you ever tried to take your dog on a walk to get him to go somewhere he didn't want to go? Right, I know if it's, uh, it, for me, when I take Baxter for a walk, he's an 11-pound dachshund. He's a very small dog. Um, I weigh significantly more than that. Um, but if I start taking him for a walk, and I, start to, I get him on the leash, and we start to leave the house, but then I realize, oh, I forgot my keys. I need to turn back. And I start going back to the house, and he wants to go on for a walk. He will dig in. He'll back up his neck against me, and he just won't move. And it becomes amazing to see, realize how, how much, when a, even when a stubborn little 12-pound dachshund doesn't want to move, he's not going to move. I can pick him up, so I do, you know, I get it done. But the, the, the image of a stiff-necked people is the image of when, uh, when, a, when the Israelites would try to lead their animals, whether they were trying to lead a donkey or an ox, to go somewhere, and when the, when the donkey didn't want to go, and he'd back up his neck and get stiff. And Moses is saying, this is what we're like. We are like an animal that is not easily led. God, when you try to lead us, when you try to shepherd us, when you try to direct us, we're so certain that we know what's best, that we get stiff-necked against you. We become difficult to lead. We don't want to go where you're taking us. In the case of the people of Israel, it was they wouldn't even follow the God who'd set them free from slavery who'd promised them the promised land, even following his guidance, they dug in and said, no, we're going to go our way, not your way. Sin always is the belief that our ways are the right ways. And this, of course, alienates us from God. It alienates us from one another. It's this basic human pride in our own ways that taints every single one of our relationships. Right? Think about, uh, think about what so often goes wrong in our marriages. Is it not the two people's fundamental belief that their way is the right way? Whether it's something little or something big. Right? Whether it's over how the dishes get organized in the dishwasher, or how we raise and discipline our kids, or how we argue, or how we communicate. Right? We dig in in our relationships on my way is the right way. And so much good starts to happen in our lives when we pray the simple prayer that Moses prays. God, show me your ways. God, show me your ways. Make my goal not to convince my spouse to change their mind and adopt my ways, but let's both try to figure out your way, figure out your mind, figure out your heart through this. So the first prayer in knowing God is, God, show me your ways. Help me to see the foolishness of my own ways. Help me to see how lost and stuck they've gotten me. And show me your ways. The next question, uh, the next prayer that Moses offers, we see in verse 15. And Moses said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not you going with us? so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth. This question is is basically, be with us. right? He's prayed, show me your ways. Now he's praying, God, be with us. 
stay with us. Go with us as you lead us. Now, this is in response to, in the wake of the golden calf incident, God, fed up with his people, essentially told Moses this. He said, you know what? You guys go. Go on into the promised land. I'll still give you the land, but I'm not going with you. Up to this point, remember, God had walked with his people every step of the way. He led them by a pillar of cloud by night, or cloud by day, fire by night. He'd fed them with manna, as bread rained down from heaven. And now what he essentially says to them is, y'all go, you can still have my promises, you can still have the land, but I'm not going with you. And his his reason is interesting. He says, because if I go with you and you keep doing this, I might accidentally wipe you off the face of the earth. Right? If you keep keep trying me in this way, I don't know what I'm going to do. So y'all go, go without me. This is essentially... Uh, and this is, I mean, on one hand, this is a gracious offer by God. In spite of your idolatry, in spite of everything you've done, you can still have my promise. You can still take the land. This is essentially a gracious uh, proposal for an amicable divorce. It's saying, look, you can keep the house, uh, you can have the stuff, uh, you, can keep, you can keep everything I told you you could have, but we're done. We're no longer going to be living together as God had said he would with his people as a husband and as a wife. And so Moses, this is, this is amazing, Moses says, you know what? If you don't go with us, we won't go. If you don't accompany us along the way, we're not moving on from this place. What Moses knew was that the, the blessing of the covenant, the blessing of God's grace and what he had given them, was not the stuff. Right, it wasn't the stuff that God had promised. It was God himself. Right, it wasn't uh, even, as great as it was, freedom from slavery. It wasn't the inheritance of the promised land. It wasn't the promise of descendants in a great nation. The core of God's covenant with his people was, you will be my people and I will be your God. Right, God himself is the greatest gift of our life with God. Right, the gifts of the gospel that we enjoy in Christ, the greatest gift is God himself, that God has chosen to give us his very self. Moses loved and valued God more than God's blessing. You know, I think that there is something that happens to us uh, in this life and something that has happened. When you listen to the way that we talk about our faith today, Uh, That is, there has been a bit of a flattening out of the way that we talk about faith, so that we think of it primarily in terms of what we get out of it in this life and the good that it does in this life, so that really you can end up with a lot of the good things of faith, even without the belief in in the reality of God's presence in our lives. So faith becomes primarily about the positive emotional benefits that come from believing in a higher power. Prayer becomes about the centering that it does in our lives and the mental well-being that it gives us when we pray. Membership in the church becomes about the, the positive feelings of belonging, knowing one another, supporting one another, being there for one another. God's mission in the world gets reduced to being a part of a cause, being you know, the good that comes into our lives, and we know that we're a part of a purpose that's bigger than ourselves. Heaven even can become about getting out of the suffering of this world 
and into some kind of bliss. But what can be missing from it is the belief that we deal with God himself. That God in the gospel has given us a living relationship. Right? You could have the positive benefits of faith without the reality of God. You could have the, the belonging that you get from membership in a church, even the cause of serving in the world. And there be no reality behind your prayer life. There be no Holy Spirit dwelling within your heart. There be no living union between you and the Son. Christianity, real biblical Christianity, is about a relationship with the living God. Far more than it's about the stuff that God gives us. Far more than it's about things going well in our lives or us learning how to live our lives well. It's about a supernatural living relationship with the God of the universe, knit together with the Son by faith, filled with the Spirit at Pentecost. If, you, if your life is not centered as Moses' was, on the very presence of God, on the living reality of God, and such that you say, you know what, God, I don't want any of your stuff, I want you. Um, you are not going to be very happy in heaven. Uh, because the vision that we have of Revelation is of an existence centered on the glorious presence of God. What we now know by faith, then knowing by sight, right? What we taste by faith, communion with God, then being a lived reality. We are made for that. We are made to know God and to be in his presence. And so Moses says, uh, we will not go unless you go with us. And his reason for this, I love, he says, if not, how is anybody going to know that we're yours? Right? If we're not filled with your presence, if we're not accompanied by your spirit, how will anybody know that we're any different than the Amorites or the Hittites or the Jebusites, all those names that the poor scripture reader had to do last week? Right? How will he know that we're any different? God, how will our neighbors know that the church is any different than any other social club, than the Rotary Club, than the, the Awanas? Right? How, are, how are our neighbors going to know that we're any different than anybody else? It's not because we're better. It's not because we're smarter. It's not because we're more righteous. It's because of your spirit and your presence and your love and your grace and your presence with us. So Moses prays, be with us. And then finally, uh, maybe his boldest prayer of all in verse 18. Moses said, please, show me your glory. Show me your glory. Moses asks for a glimpse of God's glory. Uh, Moses asks for the thing that most theologians across the, the breadth of Christian theological traditions and throughout the, the, the breadth of Christian history tell us is the great purpose of human life which is to see and to behold the glory of God. We'll often refer to it as the beatific vision. It just means the, we love to find bigger words uh, for already amazing things. But the beatific vision means the blessed vision. It's the vision in which, as is, is, uh, John tells us uh, in his epistle, that we will, when we see God, we will be transformed so that we're like God. Right? It's what Jesus says uh, in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God, right? That we are made to see God, to behold him as he really is, to worship him, and then in that vision of him to be remade, 
into that original image. I think this is a core of what it means when God says that he made us in his image. He made us so that we could see him and then made us so that we could be transformed so that we display him in some meaningful way in our world. And so Moses prays, God, show me your glory. God responds, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. So God says, all right, Moses, good news and bad news. Uh, the good news is that I will, you want to see my glory, I will make my goodness to pass before you. I love that God equates his own glory, not with heavenly splendor or angels or gold. I make my goodness. My goodness will pass before you and I'll tell you my name. But the bad news, you'll, you'll die. If I show you my glory, if you see my glory, no human being can see my face and live. And this is the fundamental paradox of human life. The thing we long for most, to know God, to see him face to face, to have the certainty that we, that we have a transcendent relationship with the eternal God, the thing we long for the most, we cannot have. Why can't we have it? Well, there's a few different reasons at play here. One is that there is no, there is no larger gap in this universe than the gap between God and everything he created, right? There's God and then there's everything else. God is entirely other than even the best and most righteous and most holy and most beautiful of his human beings, right? The gap between us is infinitely greater than the gap between me and my dog. It's infinitely greater than the gap between you and a flea. It's infinitely greater than you and one of the microbes that you can't even see that lives on your skin. Right? It is a, it is a gap that is so great that we couldn't begin to understand or take him in. We're told also that not only is it that kind of existential gap, but that it's also a moral gap. Right? That because of sin, because of our error, because of our wandering from God, that to be in the presence of a holy God would mean certain death for us because his righteousness, his holiness, his absolute purity would, would just subsume into it all mortal sinful life. And so we cannot be in his presence, even somebody like Moses. And the Lord said, verse 21, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. There is a lot in here that is difficult for us to understand. God who exists forever is spirit. Here says, you can't see my face, but I'm going to cover you with my hand, and then you'll see my back as I go by. So this is, in some ways, this is God crouching down to come near to us, not only coming near to Moses, but to us and saying, 
look, there's so much about me that you can't understand. But to put it in words you can't understand, in human words, I'm going to cover your eyes with my hand. I'm going to pass by you. And then I'm going to move my hand. And you can peer out from the rock. And you won't be able to see my face, but you'll be able to see my glory from the back. And then you'll be able to take in the most of it you can, and you won't die. Augustine, uh, St. Augustine, uh, with, with many of the other church fathers, uh, read this passage uh, in a Christological direction. He read this as a prefiguring, a, a sneak preview of what God has done for us in Jesus. Right? It, we too, in our longing to see God's glory, can't see him face to face and survive. But so God came near to us in Jesus he came near to us to show us himself in a way that we can see and understand. The Gospel of John tells us that no one has seen the glory of the Father except for the Son who makes him known to us. That Jesus is the rock in which we hide so that we can see some bit of God's glory and live. That he is the, the glimpse of the back of God's glory so that we can see him now and so that we can anticipate seeing him face to face one day when faith becomes sight. John tells us in, in his prologue, in John 1, we have seen his glory, that is the glory of Jesus, the glory of the one and only Son of the Father. You hear what John's saying? He's saying if you've seen Jesus, if you've seen and known Jesus by faith, You've seen the glory of God. If you, not just those who saw him in his physical life, but those who believe in Christ, those who've seen him by faith, you've seen God's glory every bit as truly and as really as if you saw God face to face or if he passed before you in his glory. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul goes even further. There's this amazing uh, development in chapter 34, right after this. God, God, God's glory appears to Moses. And then when Moses comes back from the mountain, we're told that his skin was shining, that he was glowing from having beheld God's glory. That almost like the way that the, the moon reflects the light of the sun, God, God's glory is so bright that Moses' face reflected it when he came back down. But Paul tells us, uh, well, Moses tells us in Exodus that he would then put a veil over his face. Paul tells us that the reason that Moses veiled his face was because he didn't want the people to see the glory fade over time, right? As, as days went by without him being in God's glory and the glory faded, he would put a veil over his face so they wouldn't get discouraged by that. But Paul says, we now see God's glory without a veil in Jesus Christ. And so we all, with an unveiled face, See a glory that never fades, that never goes away. So what he's saying is that the glory you see in Jesus is actually more glorious, more amazing, more miraculous than anything Moses ever saw. Because what Moses never saw was God in the flesh. God coming so close to us, so near to us, that he took on flesh and bone and blood, taking on all of our humanity. Look at Exodus 34, uh, verse 6. This is when, when God grants Moses' prayer. When God causes his glory to pass before Moses. 
Start in verse 5. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, that's in Hebrew, that's Yahweh, Yahweh, the personal name of God. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. When God makes his glory to appear, he passes before Moses and he says, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. God's glory is his grace. Right? God's glory, his eternal holiness, can't be separated from his grace and mercy for us. If you want to know God, the way that we know God is when we come to know his grace. When we come to know his compassion, when we come to know his mercy and his forgiveness and his tenderness and his loving kindness. God's mercy, God's glory isn't abstract. It's not something that's somewhere out there. It's manifest in his love and his grace towards his people. In that way, you and I, sinners, have a way of knowing God's glory that even the angels in heaven can't know. Because devoid of sin, they're not in need of his mercy or his forgiveness or his tenderness. And we are. Moses was. Remember, Moses was a murderer. Moses, before he left Egypt, had killed one of his Egyptian slave masters and run out. Moses was a doubter. He was a grumbler. He was a complainer. And so when God passes before Moses and says, I am the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God. That is his glory. We cannot know God without it. And it's the reason why we see his glory most fully, as Paul says, shining in the face of Jesus Christ. Because nowhere else is God's compassion and his mercy and his patience and his loving kindness so clearly seen as it is in Jesus. God himself, in human form, taking the form of a poor baby born miles from his home, born in a manger. One who lived a life of perfect love, perfect tenderness, perfect compassion, only to die the divine life given for ours. You know, gifts always reveal something. Gifts are revelatory. They reveal something about the giver of the gift, and they reveal something about the receiver of the gift, right? If you were to come up to me on Christmas morning uh, and give me a stick of deodorant and some mouthwash, you would be trying to tell me something, right? You would be trying to tell me something about myself that I need to listen to. You'd also be telling me something about yourself and what kind of person you are. (laughs) But every gift reveals something about the giver and the recipient, right? When a When a man gives his wife a piece of jewelry at Christmas, right? It's not to say, hey, look, here's, look, I spent this much money on you. This is the, you know, I love you this much. No, it's to say, you're beautiful to me and I love you and I want you to know it. I want you to know something of my heart and I want you to know something about the way that I see you, right? That gifts always reveal the heart of the giver and how they view the recipient. And if that's the case, what does Jesus born in a manger What does Jesus shedding the life of God on the cross communicate about God and about us? Well, it communicates something profound about our need, doesn't it? 
that God loves us so much that there was no other way for us to know God and to live our life with him than by him coming for us in that kind of way. And it says something about God, doesn't it? It says something finally in flesh and blood that we had heard from his mouth that Moses heard. How do we know that God is a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness? We know it because of Jesus. We know it because of the gift of his life, because of the gift of his death. We know it because of the hope of new life that we have in him. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in you we see the glory and grace of God fully in ways that our eyes would never be able to fully take in, in ways that our hearts uh, even struggle to believe. Lord, that you make God known to us. And in you, Lord, we learn that God's name is grace and mercy and compassion and loving kindness. Lord Jesus, we want to know the Father. We want to know our God. And so, Lord, with Moses, we pray that you would show us your ways, that you would show us, that you would reveal to us the ways that our ways fall short of your ways. You would give us the gift of repentance that we would turn to you. Lord, that you would be with us by your Spirit, your life with us and in us. And Lord Jesus, we pray that you would show us your glory. Lord, we know that one day we will see you and in that seeing we'll be like you. But until then, Lord, help us to set the eyes of faith on you, that we would seek you, that we would seek to know you as you are, so that like Moses, we might more and more closely radiate your glory and your grace to our world. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information or would like to help support the local body of Christ Church in town, please visit our website at ChristChurchInTown.org.